fitting that a new era for Canadian soccer would be ushered in by an eight-goal victory. The international window saw John Herdman coach his first ever competitive match in charge of the Canadian men's national team. It was also Canada's first foray into the new CONCACAF Nations League. We'll talk about all that ahead on another edition of the Footy Talks podcast. My name is Mitchell Tierney and also ahead on the show some more details have emerged about the Canadian Premier League that are certainly worth getting into. And Toronto FC have a chance to win a trophy this next week, just not one of the ones we would have thought they would. Joining me to talk about all that from MLSsoccer.com and Vice Sports, it's Daniel Squizzato. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me, Mitchell. It's uh, interesting that you mentioned Canada ushering in a new era by scoring eight goals. It's nice to have an important match where eight goals are going out rather than coming in, but I'll just leave that there. (laughs) Absolutely, and we'll... We'll talk a bit about that match and, you know, kind of frame just how important it was um, in terms of the opponent, etc. But I mean, I think right off the hop, you know, it was the most goals Canada's ever scored in a competitive match or any match for that matter uh, in the national team history. Eight goals, eight nil win over the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, I, I think ultimately, for me at least, it, it has to be considered a positive performance, especially considering sometimes the, the bar we set as national team supporters. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a difficult game to gauge because on the one hand, an eight-goal win is an eight-goal win, and you don't want to poo-poo that, especially a team like Canada's. I think um, one of the things I noted in my match recap for MLS soccer was that the eight goals scored in one game are more than the team scored in 2013 and 2014 combined, which was, I believe, 18 18 matches altogether. Uh, So, you know, obviously you want to enjoy the goals while they're coming. On the other side, there is the reality that the opponent, as you mentioned, was the U.S. Virgin Islands, who are... I believe the second or third worst team in the world, according to the FIFA rankings, which are of course infallible, as we know, uh, hadn't hadn't played a game in two years, didn't even have a venue on their home territory where they could host the game, so it was played in Bradenton, Florida. So, sure, enjoy seeing some goals go in and see some young kids open their scoring accounts for Canada, but let's not get ahead of ourselves in evaluating what this all means. Yeah, for sure, and. Uh, I think certainly one of the one of the ways we could have very quickly seen that this wasn't going to be a normal game for the Canadian men's national team is when the roster got released and we saw that starting eleven and uh, I know Canada soccer releases its starting eleven with pictures of players and I was looking and seeing kind of counting wait how many defenders what's going on here and trying to figure out the formation now we kind of knew that this was potentially a possibility because well John Herdman's done this before I believe it was Olympic qualifying with the women's national team where he was playing a similar CONCACAF opponent of of kind of a lower level and decided to go with two center backs um, you know just in just an interesting formation from Herdman but considering how many goals Canada needs in this round uh, especially considering they scored eight and they're, what, fourth in the Nations League standings on goal difference. Um, you know, I don't think necessarily it was the, the worst decision. 
Sure, obviously, in a competition format like this, you are going to want to go out and score as many goals as possible because these aren't friendlies. They are competitive games that determine which teams are going to make next summer's Gold Cup, where different countries are going to stand in terms of the CONCACAF Nations League next year when it breaks down to League A, League B, and League C. You would think, and... um, if anyone has crunched the numbers on this, then then by all means, I, I'd, I'd love to see them. But you would think that Canada winning all four of its qualifying matches, the one against the U.S. Virgin Islands, coming up against Dominica and St. Kitts and Nevis, and then against French Guyana in the new year, you would think that four wins from that is sufficient to get to that top six, get to the Gold Cup, get to the uh, top division of the CONCACAF Nations League for next year. But at the same time, seeding comes into this, And the more goals you can put past the opponent, um, the better. When it comes to lining up in (laughs) however you'd like to define it, uh, you mentioned the the game uh, when he was with the women's team, the the classic 2-4-4 that he ran out on that day. I mean, I think that against the U.S. Virgin Islands, it was a more uh, uh, conservative-minded 2-5-3. You know, you want to respect the opposition a bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I don't think that that's something, or for God's sake, I hope it's not something we can expect going forward against stiffer competition. But at the same time, you want to get attacking players out there. You want to get them building relationships with one another, given that a number of them haven't played alongside each other with the national team before. And uh, and realistically, it's it, it got the job done on the day. Uh, whether he's going to do something similar up against the future opponents in this competition remains to be seen. But I think it's interesting when you look at what he did, and I wrote about this as well, uh, in the sense of who the, and I use... Very heavy air quotes here. Fullbacks were on the day. You had, you know, if you can call it a, that, that, that kind of wingback role, you had Alfonso Davies on the left, which is a, a position we've seen him play for the Vancouver Whitecaps in the past. And you had Liam Miller over on the right side. Uh, a couple of teenage kids who, you know, have that speed, have that attacking uh, ability going forward. And we know that that's something John Herdman has put as a centerpiece of his tactical approach with the women's team. We saw him convert players like Ashley Lawrence and Jose Belanger from the uh, midfield or striking roles into that fullback role because it's something that he firmly believes in. Now, I'm not sitting here today saying that, yes, he's going to take Alfonso Davies, the multi-million dollar Canadian savior, again, heavy air quotes, that's going to Bayern Munich in a few months and and, and turn him into, into a defender. But what I'm saying is that we find ourselves in a strange position right now where Canada's depth, oddly enough, is more in its attack than in its defense. And that's going to require some creativity on John Herdman's part. So are Alfonso Davies and Liam Miller our fullbacks of the future? Again, I wouldn't think slash hope so, but we'll see how things play out next month against Dominica. So you're not looking forward to Canada going into San Pedro Sula with two defenders? I am not looking forward to Canada going (laughs) into San Pedro Sula under any conditions. As you well know, thank you for mentioning it, Mitchell. (laughs) That's that's fair enough. Um, You have mentioned the attacking talented. I'd say, if nothing else, that's kind of the 
positive for me that comes out of this camp is the fact that they were able to give those attacking options kind of some time to play together. Um, he he put all of those players on the field at, at once, as you said, a lot of the a lot of the best players. But two goals for Jonathan David in his debut, two goals for Lucas Cavallini, and two goals for Kyle Lahren. Now, obviously, we mentioned the opponent, but nonetheless, having a bunch of those guys score goals and the, it, it wasn't like the U.S. Virgin Islands. I know, kind of people have pointed to that San Lucia game uh, back in I believe it was 2011, where Canada scored seven. And that San Lucia team played a ridiculously high line to the point where late in the game, Ian Hume scored on a four-on-none breakaway. That wasn't the case this time. There was um, very much a, a solid defensive block from the U.S. Virgin Islands. So it was nice to see Canada be able to, for the most part, and, and again, we've ranked, we've talked about the team's ranking, but get through this defensive block fairly easily and and create a lot of chances especially when it you know it came to getting some confidence up for some of those goal scorers that'll be counted on going forward yeah absolutely i mean in the game against the u.s virgin islands i think you saw uh canada scored two goals within the first six or seven minutes just kind of overwhelming the opponent right off the hop at which point they they realized oh okay we'd rather not lose 25 nil today so let's just kind of hang back here for the rest of the time and as you mentioned, sure, you can talk about uh, the, the relative ranking or relative caliber of the opponent, but trying to get past 9 or, or 10 or, or 11 men basically condensed within a 30-yard a area is going to be difficult regardless of, of the relative skill levels of the teams involved. And, you know, this is often the case, but Canada could have had more goals than they had. I mean, this could have been 9 or 10 or 11 or 12 uh, whether that ends up mattering for goal differential remains to be seen. But as you mentioned there, some of these guys, you know, Jonathan David on his debut, uh, you know, a name that probably was not known to most Canadians other than those of us who regularly follow the Canucks Abroad account. <laughs> Shout out, gentlemen. Uh, you know, a guy like Lucas Cavallini, who was, you know, persona non grata with the national team for, for five years for quote-unquote reasons um you know Kyle Lahren who you know scored regularly when he was in MLS but hasn't quite put it together for the national team just yet for for one reason or another getting those guys on the scoreboard sure it's it's a low caliber opponent but I, I think we we don't want to overemphasize but we also can't completely dismiss the degree to which uh, momentum and camaraderie and a positive feeling around a national team program can affect the way that players perform. If guys like Cavallini and David and Laren are coming into the next camp with that positive feeling of having scored, of having contributed to the team, yes, against a low-caliber opponent, and yes, it'll be against another low-caliber opponent next time, but you build on that as you go along. And And I can only imagine that having that positive attitude around the team is going to be more productive than being in a situation where, you know, just hypothetically, you are working in an environment where your manager believes your team has no chance of scoring, and so you're just going to play seven center backs at a given time and hope for the best, you know? And and, 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 that's, and that's the reality. Yeah, again, just, just hypothetically, right? Um, and, and so does it does it mean a lot in the grand scheme to have pumped a couple of goals past the US Virgin Islands not necessarily but can that mean something if these players can build that familiarity build that camaraderie and build that 
positive association with a national team that they're only with every few months as we go forward, I would say there's definitely good potential of that. That's one of the positives that I know it's it's incredibly difficult and you almost can't fully you know rate what John Herdman's done so far just because he's only had two matches uh, plus the reasonably promising Toulon tournament as Canadian men's national team manager but there really does seem to be a positive environment coming out of these camps that I don't know if we've necessarily seen from other national team managers and yes you would expect players like Tosin Ricketts and Jonathan Osorio and these guys who want to get you know keep getting called up from Canada for Canada and we've seen Osorio get left uh to the side before but instead of just you know saying that they're positive he they go into depth about how positive these camps have been and how much the team seems to be working uh fully together so you know how much of a positive does that stand out to you that it continues to be good things coming out of these camps from the players about John Herdman it's always great to hear players speak positively about their experiences with the national team because that again increase you know it's it's a, it's a feedback loop it's a self perpetuating cycle the more that you have a sense of positivity around the team um and and the more that you have players that are willing to come on board be it junior hoylet belatedly admittedly uh or or scott arfield or you know cavallini coming back into the program or alfonso davies committing at at a very young age to play for canada these things build one upon the other um admittedly a player is nearly always going to say something positive about the team and about the manager if asked regardless of what the situation is um and I don't want this to sound like I'm just crapping on Benito Floro because, you know, he, he did bring some positives to the program. Uh, you know, players spoke very positively about his training and his practices and his approach when, when he was with the team. Um, and so I think it's all about what what kind of moment the team is in. Um, I think that John Herdman, and I'm going to choose my words carefully, has shown with the women's national team that... He is not just a talker, that he has coaching capabilities, that he can actually bring it to the field, that he is not, you know, a charlatan and a snake oil salesman. (laughs) He is not those things. At the same time, the fact that he is a very articulate and charming fellow definitely works in his favor, by which I mean uh, I feel like we as people watching the team – even even if we can intellectually realize it, like I am right now, we are just maybe intrinsically inclined to give the benefit of the doubt, right? Or or, or to assume that everything is under control. I mean, you look at the um, situations he's come into uh, when he's entered the two respective programs uh, with the Canadian national team. Uh, on the women's side, there was Carolina Marache, <laughs> who, and that's, you know, I mean, that that's another situation entirely, um, but that parallels Benito Floro in a bit of a way in the sense that, you know, two European managers, uh, you know, who were, you know, English was their second language. And so their ability to communicate was not always as precise. Uh, and, and I think that unfortunately they might've gotten the short end of the stick in some cases, whereas, all right, John Hurden comes in, presents himself very well. And again, I am not saying he is just a talker or just a personality. He is, proven himself with the women's national team and is beginning to prove himself with the men's national team. Um, I only bring it up because I think it is important for us to continue evaluating what's happening 
on the field and how it compares to what has happened in the past. Because, yes, Floroball did not work. It did not get us to the hex. The previous cycle did not work, did not get us to the hex. The cycle before that did not work, did not get us to the hex. At the end of the day, John Herdman is in the same situation as every manager that has preceded him. Getting to that hex stage with the men's national team is something that has eluded this program for a long time. And as with Floro, as with Dale Mitchell, as with managers before him, that is ultimately going to be the standard by which his tenure is evaluated. And we're a few years away from seeing how that turns out. So in the meantime, let's just see how things roll along. It has to be positive for kind of the marketing of this team as well, just quickly, like the fact that um, you know, John Herdman, he just seems more of a visible face than everyone else. And obviously people know him um, in the Canadian soccer circles and in the Canadian sports circles, which is even more important. You know, he's a he's a name and he's a face that's known and um, he's someone who has brought success to Canada. So people can kind of identify with him as as someone who they know brings success. And I don't know, just the fact that I've seen him. Uh, across TSN and Sportsnet and across the radio shows so much more than any other Canadian men's national team manager. And you mentioned the the kind of the language barrier with Benito that uh, perhaps, you know, stopped that a little bit. But that just, you know, for a team that, that doesn't necessarily get that much publicity, that's it's not half the battle, but it is a bit of the battle for the team as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I want to make clear that everything I just said was not meant to suggest that his personality or his outgoing nature or his ability to talk on camera are bad things. I I think that, as you just said, for a team like this that has, unfortunately, such negative baggage attached to it through the combination of historical bad results and being the men's national team in a country where soccer fans enjoy hating their own men's national team for reasons that I'm still wrapping my head around after all these years... But having him as the face of this team is indisputably a good thing as it relates to public perception because, oh, we know John Herdman. He won those bronze medals with the women's national team. He is, you know, giving TED Talks and we're counting how many buttons are undone on his shirt during games. That might just be me. Uh, <laughs> and but let's go yelling. out. Let's, it, yeah, but I do not run the Herdman yelling account. People stop <laughs> pretending that that's the case. Um, and, and to have him out there as a public face of the team does increase the possibility that people are going to support this team. And it's just like I mentioned with players, the more players you have coming on board, the more you're potentially going to have come on board in the future. The more people who go and buy tickets to watch these games, the more, you know, and this is something we've seen, um, through the active work of, of groups like the Voyageurs, getting people through the door at games creates that atmosphere and, in whatever minor way helps the team's odds of winning. And so sure having him as a public face of the team is a great thing. It helps. All I'm saying is that at the end of the day, the team's goals are to succeed in the gold cup and succeed in world cup qualifying. And that ultimately is the standard by which the team and its manager are judged just as was the case 
with every incarnation of this team as we've had in the past. Fair enough. And John Herdman certainly one for buzzwords and buzz phrases. And one of the phrases we've heard very often from John Herdman as both a manager of the Canadian men's and women's national team is if you're young enough, you're good enough. I heard that repeated many times this past week uh, when it comes to this men's national team. And that's certainly uh, proven to be the case so far in terms of the players he's called in. We saw five teenagers called into this camp. Uh, Davies, Jonathan David, Liam Miller, uh, Alessandro Busti, and Matthew Chouanier, uh, who was kind of in the camp for, for a hot minute and then left back to Montreal but was at the camp, so we're counting him. Um, there is another very important, for me at least, tournament coming up for Canada, and that's the Under-20 tournament in November, uh, with the group being announced earlier this week, Panama, St. Kitts and Nevis, Guadeloupe, Dominica, and Martinique. Uh, so a new format, that means the top team in that group I just mentioned goes on to the qualification stage. Um, then it's another group format to see if they can get one of those four uh, CONCACAF spots for the U-20 World Cup. Um, you know, with the momentum that, that we've kind of talked about a little bit that Herdman's been building, how important is this tournament right here? Because it's been a long time since the youth national teams have qualified for, um, you know, a big World Cup like this. And um, it, it just seems like this would be a great statement that the youth movement is really working in Canada. And at the same time, how many of these players do you think we might see there? Because it's not the group stage, at least, isn't during an international window. Um, so it might be tough to get, especially some of those top end guys into camp. Sure, I I, I think that uh, the performance of a youth team in qualifying or in a tournament at the U twenty or U seventeen level says a lot more about the health of a national program than an eight nil win over the U S Virgin Islands does. And as you just said, at both the men's and unfortunately as of late the women's side. Our national teams have not really performed at at the youth level in these World Cup qualification competitions. Um, now that's obviously something that does not materialize overnight, uh, and you're you're working with different restrictions. You know, you mentioned the the international window ele- or the lack of an international window. Uh, you're you're dealing with what the relative development scenarios are. And so I, I don't think that the results in a tournament like this, uh, given how recently he's come in, uh, are at the feet of Herdman one way or the other. I think that he's going to work with the program um, as it stands, and, and it's going to be a good gauge of what's coming through the pipeline. Um, you know, every couple of years when one of these comes along, I feel like, well, I know that I do this. I, I look at the rosters and I say, oh, well, this is promising. This is promising. This is promising. And as is the case with any under-20 team, any youth team, the unpredictability level is so high. You know, you're, you're, you're going to have players who come in as seeming can't-miss prospects. And you and I and everyone listening have seen some of those come through the Canadian system in the last 5 or 10 or 15 years uh, who end up missing despite being can't miss. And then you have players who maybe don't play as big of a role at the U20 level or late bloomers to some extent and, uh, and, and, and end up being a big part of the national team scene. I mean, uh, a, a guy you mentioned earlier in passing, um, Jonathan Osorio, who now is, you know, a centerpiece for Toronto FC and, and, and is increasingly a centerpiece for the national team uh, was, was not, a huge factor when he was at the under 20 level, but 
in the time that he's been able to grow at the club level, he, he's the player that we see today. And so um, it's it's obviously a positive if if the team can do well in in a qualification tournament like this, and it'll provide a few more options for Herdman in the Senior World Cup qualifying campaign to come. Uh, but I think that we can use them as general guidelines. It's like the size of the bowl of cereal that's on the front of the package. You know, I mean, they show you the perfect bowl of cereal and that's what you're going for. But sometimes you're going to have a small bowl and that'll be fine. And sometimes your bowl runneth over and that'll be fine too, as long as you don't pour milk on it because then you'll get it all over the table. My analogy is falling apart a little bit. (laughs) But I guess what I'm saying is the tournament is a point of interest, uh, but not a point of guarantees. Apparently they use glue in their marketing cereal. I learned that instead of milk because really? it looks more white on the package. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> that's it. I'm out. That's that's the only piece of information I need today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> We're bringing you both education and Canadian soccer talk on this week's podcast. Um, before we wrap up, uh, I hate to end it on, I don't know if this is a bit of a negative, but one of the things I've been wondering about all this is th- there are obvious positives to the Nations League and, you know, Canada is getting to play two home games, which I'm very excited about this year and certainly looking forward to that October one as a result of this new competition. But there is a Gold Cup tournament coming up this summer that Canada obviously hasn't qualified for yet, but it looks pretty likely that they will. Um, but you wonder almost like the all their games this year are going to be against opposition that are very much on the lower half of the CONCACAF you know spectrum is it a little concerning that they might go into this gold cup this summer not fully battle tested and um kind of having played teams that um you know maybe they wouldn't get the full test that they need to to know how they're going to have to face up against some of the elite teams like the Costa Rica's Panamas etc it's interesting because my um my answer is going to use one of the things you said there as a jumping off point which was they haven't yet qualified for the gold cup which is not a phrase that we've had to use in 20 years canada has been an automatic qualifier for this tournament uh for the better part of two decades and this is the first time where there actually is a process by which we need to qualify for the gold cup and this is something that Uh, myself included, a lot of followers of this team have advocated for because it does give the team these guaranteed opportunities to play meaningful games, to play competitive games, to play official games in the run-up to the tournament. Now, as you mentioned, you know, are the U.S. Virgin Islands, Dominica, St. Kitts and Nevis, and French Guyana the toughest opposition that Canada could have? It's not, but you also look at Canada's preparation for the Gold Cup in previous years, where oftentimes there was just nothing. And say what you will about the Virgin, the U.S. Virgin Islands, but they are better than nothing. Not by much, but they are better <laughs> than nothing. Uh, and for some of these reasons that we talked about earlier, when, when John Herdman did a press call ahead, when he announced the roster for the U.S. Virgin Islands game, one of the things he said was really helpful in getting a really strong squad in, you know, bringing in guys like Davies and Cavallini and, and, you know, bringing Scott Arfield and Junior Hoylett and other people over from Europe was the fact that this wasn't a friendly. It's a competitive game. Again, not competitive in the sense that it's very um, evenly matched, but in the sense that there is something up for grabs. There is something 
for these players to prove. Um, so to that extent, if it can help convince players that coming over to you know Toronto in October or to whatever Canadian city hosts in March to play in a game like this is worth their time or is more worth their time than playing against, you know, Mauritania in a field in Spain <laughs> or Uzbekistan at some public park in Austria. And for newer listeners, I didn't make either of those up. Uh, you know, if, if you can bring together as strong a team as possible because they have this motivation to show up, I think that that can be quite valuable regardless of the level of the opponent. There's also the fact that, and I am willing to be proven wrong on this, but as far as I know, these are quote-unquote official games, meaning that there is cap tying involved, meaning that um, there is the potential for Herdman to bring younger players into the camp, um, you know, and, and I feel like I don't even need to say players with multiple eligibilities, because in a country like ours, basically everyone has multiple eligibilities in some way, right? I mean, if... if if I had kids, there's, I think, four different nations they could potentially play for. They would play for Canada, mm, but <laughs> theoretically, right? And and so it's not that every single young player is, you know, testing the waters between Canada and somewhere else, but having the opportunity to put these players in in a relatively low-leverage game, uh, get them some time while at the same time saying, all right, hey, you're in the Canadian pool for now. We don't have to worry about you saying, oh, I'm going to go play for whoever, because, you know, that's how professional athletes sound. And and, and being able to, to establish them as part of the program going forward is another benefit, right? I mean, you know, guys like Liam Miller and Jonathan David and, and Derek Cornelius, again, not that any of them were testing the waters with other nations necessarily, but we can now say, oh, okay, they're part of the Canadian program going forward, and, you know, we don't need to worry about you know, wandering onto the 56th page of a thread on the Voyager's message board and hearing about how their agent's uncle said that they wanted to try and go play for whoever. Boy, I've spent a lot of time doing this stuff. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, in the grand scheme, I think, yes, it's imperfect, but having the CONCACAF Nations League as preparation for the Gold Cup is an improved situation for Canada as compared to years past. Yeah, I can confirm that uh, does cap tie players as an official FIFA event, which is good because I learned... Apparently, Jonathan David was born in Brooklyn, so uh, if I had known that before that he was cap-tied, it might have caused me some uh, sleepless, sleepless nights, but uh, now he's fully he's always been fully committed to the Canadian men's national team program, so um, now he's cap-tied as well, and it looks like a positive future going forward for him. Um, let's move on from, from the Canadian men's national team to the Canadian Premier League, where there's been plenty of news as well. Um, they kind of opened the curtain a little bit this week, um, and revealed some information about the league in an in, uh, interview with the commissioner. Um, but there was also kind of the first, um, I guess, tough situation or setback for, for the league. It seemed like they'd been on such a momentum trail as they unveiled their seven first franchises and all the marketing around them, and it looked great, and everything seemed to be positive. But that eighth team that we all thought was coming and that had been rumored uh, to be coming and seemed fully positive i always found it a little bizarre that the ottawa fury um you know weren't more concrete about the fact that they're switching over well it turns out they haven't they're going to play in the usl next season um instead of making the move to the canadian premier league um the part that really stood out of me from from the canadian premier league interview that they did with their commissioner david uh, Klanikin was 
we were quite willing to adapt in a number of areas because we recognized the fact that they were an existing team playing in the USL this year under different circumstances. We were prepared to accommodate them, specifically around details like players, soccer operations, and player salaries. We had actually offered to have them operate under the exact same circumstances as they are now. So just, I mean, optically, it doesn't doesn't look great for either side almost because, you know, it would have been great for the Canadian Premier League to have an established team coming in that could kind of be almost a flagship franchise for the league in terms of someone who's operated for years and uh, has a brand already out there. But at the same time for Ottawa, I mean, if you look at how their fans are reacting to the, to this, they are not happy at all. No, and I I think that we are inclined to look at scenarios in very black and white dichotomous ways. And so our natural tendency is to look at a situation like this and say, okay, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And obviously everyone has different interests at play. I mean, if you're a diehard fan of the Ottawa Fury, no matter what, you might be naturally inclined to think that they're on the right side of history, as many people in my Twitter mentions were, believe me. Um, you know, if, if you have a different approach, then you might be more inclined to think that the Ottawa Fury were being unreasonable and that, you know, the, the folks at the CPL were the ones who ended up getting shortchanged in this situation. I think that in my ongoing attempt to think and act and speak in a nuanced way, which I realize is out of fashion, but <laughs> whatever, I'm behind the times. I, I, I think my initial reaction, I, I tweeted something out to the, to the effect that Two things can be simultaneously true, one of which is that the Ottawa Fury have for many years been doing a lot of things that have been good for Canadian soccer, whether it's elevating Julian de Guzman to the role that he, he's in, uh, having plenty of Canadian players, having Canadian uh, um, staff and, and creating an environment in Ottawa where fans have a, a local pro team that they can come out and watch and be proud of. Um, So that can be true, and what can also be true is that this decision is not a good one for Canadian soccer. And I got a lot of reaction to that, mostly from people in Ottawa, saying that, yeah, but, you know, for for the the Fury, they put all this money in, and they, and they this, and they, and basically every response was along the lines of, but the Fury are just looking out for their perceived self-interest, which doesn't negate what I said. Obviously, the Ottawa Fury have decided for their reasons that they're going to look out for the best interest or what they perceive to be the best interest of their club, a club that, you know, also made the move from NASL to USL a couple of years ago. Perhaps they feel there's more stability in sticking around. Perhaps they don't want to sever the the, the business ties and relationships that they've already built with other clubs in the USL. Perhaps they felt as though their work that they've put into assembling this roster of Canadian players would have been undone because perhaps those players would have been dispersed to to other teams in the CPL. Whatever the thinking was, the Ottawa Fury made a decision that they felt was in their own best interest, which, of course, they are 100% entitled to do. My feeling, though, is that the CPL launching next year with 
seven teams. And in the interview with Clanahan, he did say that they have other interested parties and that they could still get that eighth team in uh, under the wire before the, the season starts next year. But regardless, the CPL starting with seven teams or even with eight teams with Ottawa not being involved, Ottawa as the nation's capital, Ottawa as, as you mentioned, a team with that established history uh, and, and with recognition and everything like that, it is less advantageous for the CPL to start without Ottawa. And regardless of what one thinks about how the CPL has come to be or where it's at or what it could be or where it's going, I would think that We've come this far, and it is in the best interest of the Canadian soccer player pool and the program of Canadian soccer that the CPL be a strong and viable league. They might be in year one, they might be in year two, they might be in year five. We don't know. But anything that detracts from their ability to do that is not advantageous for Canadian soccer. Um, And that's not to say that the situation will never change. I mean, you know, uh, the, the way the league is administered, the way the players come in, who's there, who's not, will shift and, and, and alter as the years go along. But um, Ottawa not being involved is a bit of a kick in the pants for the CPL. It's one they can recover from, and I think that what they've made clear to this point is that the way they've structured things and the ownership groups that they have and, and um, the way they're going forward is not contingent on being explosive right out of the gate and and fundamentally altering the nature of the Canadian sporting consciousness right <laughs> from day one. They're built for the long run. You know, this is everything they've said to this point and everything that they've said about the ownership groups they have. And so whether Ottawa's in for 2019 or 2020 or 2021, uh, I think the CPL will find its way to get through. All I'm saying is that I think everyone could have ended up better in the long run if this could have all come together for 2019. But if it's not going to, everyone will proceed from here, and hopefully there will be a nice, happy reunion at some point down the road. Yeah, and as you mentioned, they they haven't closed the door yet on the Ottawa Fury coming in in, in a couple of years, although um, there, was, there was some talk in that same interview about the possibility that they were looking at other Ottawa um, uh, you know, other Ottawa ownership groups uh, in terms of bringing them in. They do want to make sure Ottawa's part of this league, which I found interesting. Uh, that could get fairly ugly if, if something like that were to happen, but I don't fully imagine that will happen yet. Uh, they are prepared to move on without Ottawa. They have seven teams, um, as I mentioned before, that are ready to play, and they are still kind of looking for an eighth, they said, and there's a lot of ownership groups mentioned, uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, Moncton, uh, you know, uh, Quebec City area, um, Kitchener, which is uh, very much close to my heart, as that's the, <laughs> the city I live in, um, and a number of other uh, locations in Ontario and out west as well in Saskatchewan and uh, potentially a second BC franchise. You would think if they're bringing in another team, it would be on the East Coast just to balance things out but um you know do you have any thoughts on on potentially bringing in an eighth team and i guess the the main thing is that they don't rush anyone into this that you know it doesn't look great to launch with seven but this as you said this league's been built for the long haul and if they have to launch with seven strong teams it's better than launching with seven and then one uh weaker one absolutely i think optically 
eight teams is great because you have that that schedule balance um and it does you know i mean i don't know people just like even numbers better than odd numbers <laughs> it's just that's why we call the odd ones odd and the even ones even um i think that of the markets that you just mentioned which are some of the ones that the commissioner mentioned in that interview I mean, the one that pops off the page to me, and and you'll like my answer here, would be Kitchener-Waterloo, because you uh, have that uh, little bit of history there with with KW United. You know, you have a potential venue um, that that they can use right off the hop, uh, hopefully. Um, You know, you you have a bit of uh, ingrained history from having having had a... um, a championship winning, if I recall correctly, yep. PDL team Absolutely. from uh, from from a few years ago, um, and, and you have a large population base in in that area and, and in the surrounding areas. Uh, I think that some of those other places that you mentioned, you know, a, a place like St. John's, Newfoundland, especially sorry, St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador, mm, mm, official name of the province, um, having a team in a place like that would be great for nostalgic reasons and for uh, uh um you know whimsical reasons and i don't say that in con- I, no i don't say that in a condescending way I, I i mean in the sense that you know people who haven't lived there or who haven't been there kind of think of it as this wild hinterland and like oh wow a team would be there you know st john's is a, is a is a large city with you know a university and lots of you know like so I, i'm not saying that in a like yes it is whimsical um but i'm saying that they they're not at, at the point necessarily where they you know if they have an ownership group or, or we don't know about it um so what i'm saying is that you if if they are going to an eighth team for year one um it would make the most sense for it to be somewhere where there's a bit of of recent established history so that they're not starting from square one um you know the a, a team in saskatchewan for instance is something that clanahan mentioned uh and something we've heard a lot about but we know that they're not or you know necessarily at the point where 2019 is in the equation maybe further down the road uh, you know, uh, having a team in Quebec would be great, but you, again, you're thinking about, all right, what's the venue? Who's the ownership group? Things like that. And, um, and yeah, so ultimately, you know, optically and in terms of scheduling balance, having eight teams would be preferable to having seven, but in the long run, having seven strong teams that are there and, and know that they're there and know they're going to stay there are better than having seven teams as i've just described and one team that was kind of hurriedly rushed in the door before they perhaps had the chance to really dot all the i's and and cross all the t's um because i think the 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 thing you definitely don't want to have happen is to have clubs come in perhaps before they're entirely ready and then stumble along the way and and um you know and, and that that doesn't serve the long-term benefit of that local market or the league as a whole yeah absolutely i think uh i agree with all that and the other big thing that came out from this this kind of interview uh, with the commissioner as well was a little bit more we're, we're kind of getting bits and pieces of, of how the roster rules are going to work for this league um and the big thing that stood out to me or a couple of big things that stood out to me were the fact that it's going to be more than 50% Canadians on the overall roster will be part of the rules and uh, more than 50% Canadians in the starting 11. 
Um, I, I think if you didn't have some kind of Canadian roster rule, then there's really no point in doing this, obviously. But um, And the other thing was that they are going to have a soccer operations budget, as they called it. Or I think that would probably the salary cap of around seven figures um which was kind of one of the things uh, there were a couple leaks from what seemed like the Ottawa fury camp about how low the league salary was going to be although if you take cpl at their word um they were going to bring them in at their current structure anyway so you know it's positive that at least uh, it's it's upwards of seven figures it would seem but i kind of wonder i mean Look, I, I know that they need to build Canadian talent, but over 50% seems like a lot to me in terms of, you know, I I go to two ways on this because I think the talent is here to some degree, but at the same time, that's a lot of Canadians on the, on the field at once. And I was almost hoping it'd be maybe a little bit less and uh, at least through the first few years and um, at least to get the standard of play higher. But then then you see guys come out of nowhere with the Canadian men's national team system who just need these opportunities to play and uh, i guess that's really the the goal of this league in the end yeah and th- and this traces back to when we were talking about the under 20 program a little bit earlier uh in the sense that things fluctuate wildly especially um when it comes to Canadian teams in the sense that you know we often have players on our under twenty or um, whoops he's saying our referring to yes I'm Canadian I care about the Canadian <laughs> team if you if 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 you've been reading and listening to me and you have, are under some delusions that I'm completely nonpartisan in this surprise um, but um, you know when when players don't necessarily have solid setups when they yeah sure they're with uh, you know, they're they're a, a 16 or a 17 or an 18-year-old, and they're with an academy, which is great. Or they're, you know, sitting on the bench for a reserve team, which is, you know, not great. Um, you know, one of these, one of the advantages here is that this is an opportunity for, you know, we're not necessarily, yeah, there will be, you know, 27-year-old guys and 25-year-old guys and 30-year-old guys. But it's a chance for these, like, 16, 17, 18-year-olds who... Uh, haven't played in professional environments to get out there and and build themselves and they're obviously not you know not everyone is alfonso davies you know not everyone is going to blow the blow the roof off right from the time they're a teenager but this is a chance for those players to to go out there and 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 make themselves uh known you look at a guy like jason devos who you know, a massive member of the Canadian national team, uh, still playing a massive role in Canadian soccer with a, a front office role with the Canadian Soccer Association. Um, but he was able to get his career started because as a 16-year-old or as, as a young teenager, I don't know if it was precisely 16, um, he had the chance to go out and play with his local CSL team. And this is the old Canadian soccer league that went away in the 1990s, not the you know, the other one, uh, you know, and, and from that he moved on to, to play in Europe. And, you know, as I said, captain the men's national team and, and, and have a lot of success. And again, not everyone is Alfonso Davies. Not everyone is Jason DeVos, but when you get these kids out there with the opportunity to test themselves against men, against professionals, that's how the system builds and, and replenishes itself. Now, when you talk about 
standard of play, I mean, yeah, I, th I don't think anyone should come in with delusions about what this is and isn't going to be. I think those of us who have followed this closely understand what having a Canadian-heavy league is going to mean at this point in time. Uh, but at the same time, if you come in strong and say, this is what we are, this is what we're doing, sure, it may, it may take a couple of years for, for, for the league to find its footing. But as I mentioned earlier, those behind it are building it for the long run. You know, they, they, they understand what it will and won't be in year one or year two or year three, but what it might be in year five or year 10 or year 20. And I think I, I just have to disagree with you a little bit, Mitchell, in that, um, I think that the potential worry about standard of play for the first few seasons, if you're coming in with a Canadian quota too high, is a risk that is better to take than starting with a low Canadian quota in order to kind of kickstart things and then try and raise it later. Because, because if you've established that this is a league mostly of you know Americans or foreign players or, or wherever they're coming from, I guess they're foreign, they're coming from somewhere else. So yes, foreign players. <laughs> um, and then, you know, three years or five years or however many years down the road say, okay, now we're going to raise the Canadian quota. Well, you're going to run into a situation where players are like, well, I've, I've been here for three years. I've been here for five years. Why do I have to, you know, like, why is my spot being taken? And clubs, you know, however committed they, they, they are to Canadian talent are going to say, hey, you know, this guy's been here for five years. Why? So I don't know. I, I think that, again, if you're, if, someone is taking the long-term view, I think that we we take this league where it's at in year one, um, and we see what happens, and we see what can be built upon for year two, and then what can be built upon for year three, and uh, it, it seems like those in the decision-making roles with this league understand that, and hopefully there are uh, a lot of fans and observers throughout this country who are willing to take the same approach and uh, and watch this league grow. That's fair enough. And, uh, you know, like you said, this this is the express goal. This league is, is long-term and and Canadian content. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense to me. I, you know, I, I, I do still have a couple reservations, but I think that um, overall it's it will be positive. And um, it is exciting to see or hear at least the, the number of Canadian players uh, who are interested in this league and, um, you know, all the numbers coming out uh, of the open trials and that sort of thing. So, you know, hopefully this does uh, unearth players in the way that, that we, we are hoping it will. Um, let's move on to our final segment, though, just before we wrapped up and talk, talk very quickly about Toronto FC. Um, basically, they have to win out at this point, which I don't think anyone believes they, they will, considering they've only won seven games this season and they have seven games remaining, so having to double that. But um, they have the LA Galaxy this weekend, and coming off the international break, uh, basically, you know, they're hoping that it's kind of a reset. I know they've talked about this kind of being a new season, but at some point, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I, I, I feel like I read an article every second week about how Toronto FC is running out of time. Well, I've, it seems like at this point they might have just, just run out of time. So kind of where where do you think they should go from here in terms of, uh, of next season obviously they have the champions league as well next year so they're going to have a similar format of schedule and, and a similar difficulty in terms of balancing uh competitions so uh, you know where where do you see this this club progressing from here because certainly this season wasn't expected at all 
I don't think anyone would have expected the team to miss the playoffs, which of course they haven't officially done yet, but um, would not have suspected that they'd be in the situation they're in at this point in the season. But I, 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 I know th- I know that you know this, and I know that anyone listening to this knows this. Um, and uh, I live out on the West Coast now, so people, you know, they don't maybe follow Toronto FC as closely. And they say to me, I mean, they're trying to mock me when asking, but they say, hey, what happened to TFC this year? And then I ask them how many rings the Whitecaps have, and that shuts them up. But, uh, but, uh, but it don't, and don't someone talk to me about old, you know, rings from USL or anything like that, or the A-League, whatever. I don't care. Um, but, uh, but they asked, you know, what went wrong? And, and it's, it's simple. They went all in on trying to win the CONCACAF Champions League, which they came extremely close to doing. Had, you know, a, a Marky Delgado shot been a few inches in a different direction, or if a few penalty kicks had gone a different way at the end of that game... Toronto would be continental champions and people would be a lot more forgiving of the MLS season unfolding the way that it has Um, in the process of going for that unprecedented title. A lot of injuries happened. The team started off slow and was not able to recover. Um, And so I don't think we need to dig too deep for an understanding of of how and why it happened. Um, I don't think it's a lack of depth because this, team showed over the course of the last few years that they do have quite a bit of depth and to even be as competitive as they have been this season with some of the injuries that they've had um, speaks to that I mean obviously as is always the case you know if a team doesn't do the way they're expected you know fans will clamor and say we want change and so some players will get turfed and if you know Oh, God, if they fire Greg Vanny we can do another podcast entirely devoted to that um but, you know, it, it, it's not as though we're in a situation where you look at the core of this team and think, oh, the league has passed them by. You know, I, I don't think that's what this is a matter of. I think it's a, it's, it's a matter of circumstance and it's a matter of um, a situation playing out in a way that hasn't happened for this team before. Um, now, you know, that being said, the Montreal Impact went to the CONCACAF Champions League final a few years ago, and they still... But anyway, we're not going to talk about other Canadian teams right now. Um, you, you you look at the core of this team, and, you know, some people will look at it and say, well, okay, it's 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 time for, for, for changeover on that end. I'm not necessarily inclined to agree. I mean, I don't, as I said, I don't look at this team as a team that MLS has passed by. Uh, I think that you take a, a good chunk of this roster forward into next season, and of course you're going to reload and, and change things up in a few ways, as teams always do. But um, I don't think that it was. Uh, I, it, you know what it is. Here, here here's what it is. Um, a lot of people got really excited about the Blue Jays. You know, a few years ago, and it was funny because the Blue Jays and TFC kind of, you know, were, were, were getting into the playoffs, uh, you know, big playoff runs at exactly the same time. I mean, you know that, you know that 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 slaloming goal that Javinko scored against the New York Red Bulls to clinch the playoff spot, and he had just come off the plane from Norway or Italy or whatever, and it was this grand, amazing story. That would have been the most incredible Toronto sports story of the year if Jose Bautista had not hit a home run that same night an hour earlier down the road. And the reason I bring up the Blue Jays is because you look at the Blue Jays, they had a core, uh, they, 
they had two runs into the playoffs, into the ALCS, and now they are garbage. And now they are going to spend another 10 years in the doldrums doing nothing. And that's what Toronto fans are accustomed to. And they're, and they're looking at TFC and saying, well, they had their two years. They got to the MLS Cup twice. They're not doing as well this year. Oh, it must be like the Blue Jays. Time to sell off everyone. Time to start from scratch. Time to burn it all down and build it up again and wait another 10 years. And Tobias will come back to life and the South End will be empty and this and that. Nah, man. It's MLS. Things happen quickly. Atlanta United didn't exist two years ago, and now they're this juggernaut, you know? I mean, like, David Beckham is probably going to spend every cent he has to bring in every player from every corner of the globe to buy a championship for the Miami team when they show up. So the idea that TFC has to now take a step back because this MLS season didn't go the way they wanted is not in line with the reality of how this league works. Um, I mean, they could still make the playoffs. It's unlikely. I mean, they're not going to win out, but... Who the hell knows? And, and, and so I think that um, alarmism is not called for here. We understand why the season went the way that it did. And I don't think that this is a team that's far away from getting back to where it was the last few years next season. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I've kind of been telling people that all season. But it's, <laughs> as you know, it's hard to it's hard to fully get that message through when you're in the, in the midst of a, a tough run like this. Um, as I teased off the top, Toronto FC does have a chance to to lift another trophy this season. Um, certainly not one of the ones that I think people would have been anticipating, but the Campions Cup, they play against Tigris, who's uh, the team, obviously, they beat in the CONCACAF Champions League. Uh, for, for me, one of the, you know, probably the best moment of this season was was that tie against Tigris in, in terms of, you know, just how incredible it was and, and the moments uh, that came out of it, the Jonathan Osorio backheel. But, um this one's a this one's a much tougher sell, and uh, you, you can tell that based on um, kind of the ticket numbers for this game. It seems like a cool idea. Like I'm all for the stoking of the rivalry between Liga MX and and uh, you know MLS, and we've we've definitely seen you know kind of a reinvigoration of of the U.S. Mexico rivalry uh, with the game that uh, just happened. But I don't know where do you see this this competition on? I guess kind of the kind of the scale between you know MLS Cup and and the Trillium Cup is it I, I would put it closer to Trillium I think I had a whole big punchline prepared and then you stuck a pin in it right there by mentioning it because I was going to say I've been following this team closely since day one and let me tell you there is one trophy that matters to me and it's the Trillium Cup but anyway here we are oh, I'm sorry uh no that's fine I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you um I'm gonna you know lift the veil a bit here on podcasting and that you sent me some notes ahead of time so that I knew kind of what we would be talking about and there was a, a, a heading Toronto FC and a you know it said Campione's Cup does this matter and my first reaction was to google what the hell is the Campione's Cup uh i died you know this is probably because i'm far away now i did not know this was a thing i didn't know what it was i didn't know tfc was in it uh i'm currently staring at the wikipedia page uh this seems like another attempt to foster and foment domestic rivalries within CONCACAF, which is you know a good thing because the more excitement is better the fact this is the first incarnation of it and it's between a team from canada and a team from mexico is probably not the biggest sell um you know i i think that uh i i'm i'm gonna i've I've made this point before in that 
every sporting trophy, every achievement of a professional sports team is worth exactly the amount that the fans are willing to invest in it. Because a stranger lifting a piece of silverware doesn't help my life or hurt my life unless they're lifting it above their head to strike me with. But in this case, that's (laughs) not what it's for. It's celebratory. And so if people believe the Campione's Cup matters, it matters. If people believe the MLS Cup or the World Cup matters, it matters. If they don't, it doesn't. For the time being, I think, especially since TFC is in the midst of a disappointing domestic season and this is a new competition, people aren't really going to necessarily care. I think two or three or ten years down the road when there's more history established, as, as we've seen with the Voyager's Cup competition, with the CONCACAF Champions League, uh, you know, the longer it's competed, the more interesting games there are attached to it, the more people care, ergo, the more it matters. Kind of with the Canadian Premier League. Is, this gonna, is it going to set the world on fire in year one? Probably not, but is it going to create a groundwork for people to care about it in year 10 or year 20? Hopefully. And so, to briefly answer your question, well, briefly, I've already bypassed that, but to summarize my own bloated answer, does this matter? Not now. Not really. Not yet. It's not going to make anyone feel better about the domestic season, but if Toronto FC can win it, and this goes on to be an amazing competition that everyone really cares about, Having been the first team to win it will be a really nice piece of trivia. Yeah, fair enough. I just hope nobody gets hit with that Campion's Cup because uh, <laughs> that thing, uh, looking at a picture at it right now, that thing looks like it could do some damage. So uh, no striking with the silverware. That's the that's the minimum uh, <laughs> we can expect, especially with the injuries that uh, have befallen Toronto FC this season. But um, that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Where can uh, the listeners find your work? Uh, as you mentioned, I did a few write-ups about the recent Canadian national team camp over at MLSsoccer.com. I've also done some writing about the CPL and other Canadian soccer matters over at Vice Sports, so folks can check that out. They can also follow me on Twitter at my full name, which I'm guessing are in your show notes because it's too long to spell right now, but people might give it a look. Fair enough. Yeah, check the show notes. Uh, I'll put the Twitter handle there. Um and, uh, you know, as we mentioned, there will be plenty more Canadian soccer talk ahead on the podcast as uh, Canada plays uh, against Dominica in October. Uh, we'll be back to club football next week, though, uh, on the show. And, uh, you know, um, plenty more to talk about that as Toronto FC, of course, plays in their first ever Campions Cup, as we mentioned. Uh, everyone check the Wikipedia page. <laughs> I've been Mitchell Tierney, and thanks, everyone, for listening.